Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good morning, everyone. We may have a few others joining us as they try to find the room, but we decided we'll get started so that we have time for introductions. Um, So what I'll do is um, first introduce myself and our speakers, and then we can go around the room. So my name is Zoe Marks. I'm on the faculty here at the Harvard Kennedy School. And with Professor Derek Cohen, I co-convened this seminar on gender and security. Um, today, we're very fortunate to have uh, Teresa Thailand. Is, is that the correct answer? Very good. Is it okay? <laughs> um, but we also are joined by one of our PhD students, Chelsea Green, who will be acting as the discussant. So Chelsea is a PhD student in the Harvard University Department of Government. She's focusing on issues at the intersection of gender, political psychology, and international relations. Green's research explores whether and how individuals project their attitudes about gender norms and hierarchies onto states and state behavior. Before coming to Harvard, um, she served as the research assistant to Scott Sagan at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation, where she managed a research team and helped field surveys that assessed public opinion on nuclear weapons and wartime issues. She previously worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace as a Scoville Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program, and there she researched issues related to emerging powers in the global nuclear order and wrote the evolution of CNEN regulation on radiological materials with medical applications before and after the Guyana radiological accident of 1987. I couldn't figure out a longer title. Wide-ranging expertise. both feminist and technical, which isn't to say that those are different things, but um, I think speaks to your breadth as a scholar. And that was published in the Center for Strategic and International Studies Nuclear Scholars Journal. So thank you for joining us, Chelsea. Teresa Thailand is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Essex University in the UK. She's a gender and humanitarian specialist at the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, also known more colloquially as UN Women. Um, and she's based in New York, where she works full-time for young women. Her research is focused on the construction of gender among ex-combatants in Colombia in particular, and has recently been published, including just last week, um, in Women, Gender, and Research and the Academic Journal Sexualities. Before joining UN Women, she worked as a gender expert in Colombia, providing technical assistance to the Presidential High Council for Reintegration of Ex-Combatants, as well as with um, the UN Regional Center for Peace, Disarmament, and Development in Latin America and the Caribbean. She's also worked with the UN Relief and Works Agency for the Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA, and the UN Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women. She has extensive both practitioner and um, policy and research experience. She has a master's degree from Lund University in Sweden. And we are incredibly grateful that you took time out of your busy work week and advocacy work to um, to join us and present your research. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming, and thank you, Lara, so and Chelsea for the invitation to the Harvard Kennedy School for hosting me. I'm really, really excited to share this new research of mine on LGBT ex-combatants in Colombia. As uh, so we said, I've just published two articles, so um, I will focus today on first um, the variation between different armed groups in Colombia, how LGBT combatants are treated. And then I will turn to the challenges and opportunities that LGBT uh, ex-combatants face once they leave the war, so in the process of what we call disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. So <clears throat> my, my work is unique in the sense that 
I think over the last years, both scholars and policymakers and practitioners and so forth have started to pay increased attention to LGBT combatants in uh, state security forces. And there's also been an increased interest in uh, or acknowledgement of targeted violence against civilian LGBTI populations. But this specific group of LGBT persons serving within non-state armed groups have been almost completely overlooked and very little is known about their uh, experiences. Obviously, uh, LGBT persons have uh, participated in all forms of warfare throughout all times of history. And there has been examples and uh, evidence of several cultures where it's been considered favorable to deviate from heterosexual norms. Still, there's been a tendency in the legacy of discrimination and violence in many uh, armed forces and groups um, against LGBT uh, persons. And this has been irrespective of ideological differences between armed groups. They kind of come together in this hatred against, uh, against LGBTI populations. Um, still, that has then made scholars think that militarization, there's something about militarization that kind of foment this normative heterosexuality <coughs> that fuel this violence, both towards civilian population as well as within their own ranks. But as we've also seen over the last years, there's been important changes in military policies, and as my research also shows today, that there, there is, in fact, important variations that also shows that this is not something static, but actually something that can be transformed uh, over time. That is important to take into consideration. If we then turn into turn to to when uh, combatants leave war um, and enter into this disarmament, mobilization, and reintegration programs, they have also similarly then been completely overlooked. And policy guidance in this area, such as the UN Integrated DDR standards, for example, make no reference to sexual and gender minorities. Similarly, the landmark. Security Council Resolution 1325, which is very much um, the, the genesis of kind of the, the idea of looking at gender in DDR, of course, doesn't move beyond the binary. So instead, over the last years, we've seen an important acknowledgement of how women and girls have been excluded in DDR programs. Uh, and we've also seen more interest also in militarized masculinities, toxic masculinities, and femininities. But I argue that it's important to also now turn to and understand both how you know, the experience that LGBT ex-combatants carry with them from the armed groups, as well as their rights, their needs, their participation throughout the, not just DDR programs, but peace building programs, transitional justice programs. So this focus on LGBT uh, ex-combatants, for me it's part of uh, my larger um, uh, PhD research, which focuses uh, on the construction uh, of gender in the process of reintegration in Colombia, uh, male, female, and sexual and gender minorities. So I have done in-depth interviews with uh, 55 ex-combatants of different genders and sexual orientation, and out of which 11 uh, are with uh, ex-combatants whose sexual orientation, gender identity, and or sexual practices fall outside normative heterosexuality. So what do I mean with this? I mean, for example, that this sample then also include for example, a, a woman who self-identify as heterosexual but had a lesbian uh, relationship within the armed group. Um, and the fact that this group has been overlooked is, of course, it's a difficult area to research. That I, I can vouch for that. And other scholars have also pointed to these methodological difficulties in researching in this area, including this ingrained secrecy 
uh, and rigid gender norms that, uh, that uh, surrounds this issue among uh, ex-combatants. My research um, focused on three different norm groups. So just briefly, uh, of course, the Colombian uh, conflicts is the longest uh, armed confrontations in the, in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and the three groups that I look at, I first look at the, the FARC, as you know, who signed a peace agreement with the Colombian government in 2016. Um, but they were formed in 64 as a rural um, uh, self-defense militia and was the largest and oldest guerrilla in, in, in Latin America. Then, in the 70s, came a second generation of guerrilla movements in Colombia, and I focused on the, uh, the urban guerrilla group called M19, uh, which is quite different in its cadre of more educated kind of uh, uh, combatants that, uh, that shaped after the fraudulent uh, presidential elections of 1970. And then in kind of response to the growing um, powers of the guerrilla movements in Colombia, you have this emergence of right-wing uh, paramilitary groups that started uh, confronting the guerrillas, and they united together in the Auto Defensa Unidas de Colombia, so the United um, Self-Defense Group of Colombia, in 1997. So those are the three groups that, that I look at. As you can see, are, there's important differences between them. If we look at the issue of LGBT uh, persons in Colombia, uh, the LGBT community has been uh, specifically targeted and is proportionally affected by the Colombian conflicts uh, and by different armed groups, uh, both left-wing, right-wing, state security forces and so forth. So that's why it's so particularly welcome that the final peace agreement between the FARC and the government of Colombia, in fact, uh, places special emphasis on the fundamental rights of the LGBTI community. Uh, so this uh, means a, a significant shift in the policies of, of, of the FARC themselves and an acknowledgement uh, of the LGBTI communities and their rights. And, 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 and the different scholars have argued that this really sets a global precedent, in a sense, for peace agreements uh, to include these issues and, and also to to queer the women, peace, and security agenda. So there's a kind of an expectation now uh, forming with this uh, Colombian experience. However, from the point of view of my research, uh, I need to underline also that the, the LGBT combatants who served within the FARC, the violence perpetrated against them or their needs in the reintegration process is not contemplated in the, in the peace agreement as such. So once again, that's being overlooked. It's also important to mention that the inclusion of uh, these LGBT rights in the peace agreement uh, mobilized uh, socially conservative groups in Colombia against the peace agreement, uh, which was um, uh, voted against in a, in a national referendum, right? So this also points to the need of um, working in a circumspect way when introducing these, uh, these topics in order to not create further societal backlash or, of course, uh, you know, to ensure a do-no-harm approach, both to the communities and, of course, um, in my case, the, the combatants uh, themselves. And I think in Colombia, you know, that cannot be enough underlined, current, especially now with the current wave of violence against social leaders and human rights defenders. So I'll start with uh, talking about the LGBT combatants 
in war, as I said, and the variation between the, the groups. And what my research really shows is that there indeed are large variations between armed groups in Colombia when it comes to how LGBT persons are treated. If we first look at the, the group of the, the paramilitary, so the right-wing uh, AUC, this is the group that's really been famous for the most brutalized violence against the civilian population in general, and particularly also against LGBTI uh, communities. So we're talking about social cleansing operation and, and really, uh, really the most brutalized and sexualized violence against civilian population. Um, my research shows that this is largely true also for within uh, the, arm, the arm group itself. That is absolutely prohibit prohibited to be to deviate from heterosexual norms. That it was punished uh, sometimes by death, sometimes by uh, by by sexual violence. I had, for example, one woman who described how her lesbian partner was subjected to anti-lesbian gang rape because they had a, a relation by her called paramilitary colleagues. Uh, so this is the most brutalized, uh, really violence you, you you can you can think of, and it's a very uh, yeah it's a very clear picture uh, and, and supports also how the group acted within the broader society. When it comes to the FARC, uh, that's one of the guerrillas that have been uh, famous for most um, um, most stubbornly upholding this this prohibition of LGBT persons within their own ranks. So uh, LGBT. Ex-combatants describe how they will had been living under the double fear of death within the FARC. So either to be killed by the enemy, or to be killed by their own organization if their true sexual orientation or gender identity uh, was revealed. And there were cases where ex-combatants had been discharged when there has been suspicion of their deviation from heterosexual norms. But there were also both heterosexual interviewees in, in my research as well as LGBT combatants who described how. Uh, LGBT combatants were put before FARC's internal war trial and then executed as a punishment. And for me, this is something that's important here to notice because right now, currently, evidence is being gathered about how FARC, the, the, the violence they have perpetrated against civilian population. But there has been scholars who have, for example, challenged and, and, and asked uh, you know, if, if they, the violence against LGBT community on the part of FARC has really been systematic. But what my research shows is that if you look within its own rank, the fact that they went to these war trials shows that the violence, yes, indeed was systematic, and that it was not an individual combatant or even individual commander, because we should remember that FARC is a very centralized organization. But this was really something that was then part of group policy, uh, and that uh, also then, of course, these commanders should be held liable for these crimes now as we move into transitional justice exercises uh, in, in Colombia. And that's also, of course, something that many of the LGBT uh, combatants call for. They say, you know, they, that this has not been acknowledged, and FARC has to recognize that there were LGBT persons in their ranks, and they were assassinated. And I spoke with an interview, for example, Victoria Sandino, who was the head of the subcommittee on gender in, uh, during the peace negotiations in Havana, former FARC commander, and who is now the first senator, female senator, for FARC, and she uh, she completely denied that any violence, a knowledge of any violence against uh, against uh, LGBT uh, persons have been committed uh, within the FARC. So this is really something that you know, despite all the acknowledgement of of LGBT rights, is something that they have not dealt with uh, internally. Let's say or acknowledged. 
Then, in very large difference to the paramilitaries in the FARC, you have the case of the urban guerrilla M19, who, uh, who didn't have any prohibition for LGBT persons to enter into the group. They didn't have a policy as such governing gender and sexual orientation, but there were several accounts of how, uh, how LGBT, LGBT persons were accepted in, in their ranks, including uh, knowledge from, the, for example, of the highest commander of the, of the organization punishing uh, combatants who, who discriminated against uh, LGBT co uh, combatants who were openly gay, for example. So this was, of course, something extremely important for this combatant, the, the acknowledgement. And there was also, um, during a very brief time, in the 83-84, there was even a, a, a special unit operating in, in Bogota, conformed only of homosexual men who worked very closely with male sex workers. And as you can see here from this quote from the, one of the persons who were part of this unit, the, the objective was really to, for them to vindicate the rights of, of LGBT persons within the Colombian left. So this should, you should also remember that this, it took a decade after, after M19 had been mobilized that even the Colombian army started accepting homosexual uh, combatants. So this shows how an armed group can be more tolerant than you know, other parts of the society in which they are operating. So on the vanguard of inclusion, as I call it here. Within the FARC, and you see, uh, very briefly, I, I looked a little bit at strategies for survivals, and there was uh, different approaches that ex-combatants took. Some uh, engaged in heterosexual encounters to affirm uh, you know, hegemonic masculinity and being macho. There was even examples of, of for example, I had one that was very interesting of, of, a, of a combatant who, when he entered the group, he was approached by the girlfriend of the commander who wanted to have sex with him. And he then made a calculation that, you know, I can't reject her because if I reject her, she will think I'm gay. And for that, I can be executed. If I have sex with the commander's girlfriend, I can only be punished, but I cannot be executed. So, uh, and you know, in the far all sexual relationships, you should seek permission from the commander. So he opted for entering into such an encounter uh, because of the, the calculated risk that he, he saw of being creating a rumor that he was uh, not heterosexual. And then you have several examples of people fleeing these groups with risks of their life, risking their lives because they really want to uh, be their true self so that their sexual orientation and gender identity is one of the reasons that contributes to why they choose to, to demobilize. A very interesting thing in my research uh, that I found fascinating was also how they had to relate to, to, to what's called the cacorros in, 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 in Colombia. And this is the, the cultural distinction between gender roles, sexual orientation, and sexual practices. And, and this is the particular, the, the, the perceived um, differences between what's, called, what's understood as masculine activity and feminine passi passivity. Uh, so the cacorro, as one of our, uh, my informant described, the cacorro is a man who likes the ass, as we say vulgarly, but without touching, without kissing, without caressing, who simply wants to do it. An ass, he puts it in, he comes, and that's it. That's the cacorro. And in the guerrilla, there are too many people of this type. He is not considered gay. So this fact that he's not considered gay, this is something that's been studied by anthropologists in different parts, so it's not, uh, nothing new per se. But what my research shows is that really, uh, you know, that this becomes a question of life and death in the midst of conflicts like the one in Colombia. Because 
the fact that this Kakorwa is not considered gay makes him able to go to the commander and report on his sexual partner. And then he might be sanctioned, but the sexual partner might then be executed. So this, this, uh, this was something, a very, something that the combatants had to really think about. And there were those who said who were 20 years in the jungle without, without engaging in any sexual activities with someone else because they did, couldn't trust anyone. And here, for example, is, a, is an example uh, from, from a bisexual woman member of the FARC who said, I witnessed the case of one homosexual who was, just, who was shot because he had been with a guy with whom, with whom I had also been with many times. This guy went and told the commander that the other guy was gay and that he had approached him to have sex. So the commander sent him to war trial and he was shot eight days later. After that, I had a conversation with the guy that I had been with sexually, and I asked him why he had done this. With what intention? Since he had never said anything, never reported on me. Then he answered that the truth was that the other guy, he was ugly, that he was tired of him, and this and that. But then I asked him why he did this if he was like this too. I mean, maybe, maybe he never thought about this, but well, he was also bisexual. Then I asked him why he had never reported me, and he basically told me that it was because he liked me and that whenever we searched for each other, I always pleased him. That's why he didn't do it to me. So I think this very much illustrates the dilemma, and, and there were several other uh, ex-combatants, just like Pablo here, who, who were also very critical to this distinction between uh, Kakoro and active and passive and, and, and why they are not considered LGBT. Within uh, both uh, the AUC and the FARC who didn't allow for, um, for LGBT combatants, I also found very important what I call exceptions of toleration. And I'm not referring to M19 here since that was a group that accepted LGBT uh, persons. Um, but for example, I, I, have, I interviewed Alejandra who was a transgender woman who was living openly as transgender, even finished her transition within the paramilitary group. So she said, he, the commander of the block, treated me as a daughter. He told me, you will not have any problem here. You, you are well received here regardless of your gender. You will be respected. Nobody will make trouble for you. And if that happens, you simply tell me and I will take care of the problem. Because they have to respect you as if you were a member of my family. So I felt very protected. On the other hand, in the group like FARC, I met Jose, who was the medical doctor for one of the large blocks of, of the FARC. And he told me, I only had once had a problem with the combatant who told me, you should not be here. So I talked to the commander and he stopped him. He told him, we need him more than we need you. Combatants can be found everywhere, but not doctors. So as I analyzed these exceptions, um, it, of course, very much has to do with, the, as you see in both these examples, the commanders. The difference between them, as I see it, is that uh, in the case of the paramilitary, they, are, they were a very decentralized organization. So even um, Colombia Natural Center for Historic Memory, for example, have shown that there has been a certain flexibility depending on uh, who the commander has been in, for example, like accepting combatants having transgender girlfriends, etc. So, 
despite the fact that this is the group that has been famous for the largest amount of atrocities against the LGBT population, that each commander had that possibility to, to govern his own kingdom, let's say. Uh, and this is very much the case here as well, because it was very clear that this commander on many occasions uh, defended uh, Alejandro <coughs> in front of the, the soldiers in his, in his group. But there were occasions, for example, where other commanders of his, of his same rank was visiting his camp when he asked her discreetly to leave the camp for a couple of days to hide. And that shows that he was not, this was not something that he was willing to write, to, to, to discuss with the other commanders, that this was not part of group policy, but something that he decided upon himself. On the other side, when it comes to FARC, it's a much more centralized organization. So here it's not just Jose's closest commander who accepted, but the whole line of command up to the secretariats, most probably. And, uh, and uh, there's been others who have seen this type of, 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 um, of exceptions, and it was argued, that, and I believe that's true, that when you see that the, that the combatant hold these specific, specific skills and capacities that are important for the group to wage war, they might then tolerate this type of deviations uh, in the interest of the strategic military interest of the, of the organization. I think that this quote here uh, that he describes is a very clear, clear example of that. There was also other ex explanations that combatants uh, told me, for example, that FARC doesn't allow you to recruit LGBT persons. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if someone has been recruited and they were openly LGBT when they were recruited, it's not their fault. It's the fault of the recruiter who, who then who then um, uh, failed to adhere to policies in, in recruitment, for example. Um, so there are, depending on, there's a little bit different, but I think for me the most important uh, factor is really this of, of the, the skills and capacities and, and the importance for, for, the, for the military capacities. <coughs> One very important thing that stood out in my research uh, was how these exceptional cases, uh, really there's no solidarity as such um, between the ex-combatants within, uh, within, uh, within these groups. Rather, these exceptional cases often tend to try to impose gender hierarchies and, and really distinguish themselves from other LGBT combatants. So both in both these cases, they described how they were more, for example, Alejandra described how she was more respectful, how others were not res included in, because not because they were transgender, but because they were scandalous and behavior even to the extent that she even defended to a certain extent social cleansing operations because it was not because of their sexual orientation but, but because they live a scandalous life being drug addicts and, and etc 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 um, and similarly uh, Jose described how he uh, distinguished himself from other uh, LGBT combatants within the group and how he even at one point threatened other LGBT com uh, combatants Here's an example of, of that when he, he was upset about another um, uh, gay uh, com uh, combatant. So he said, I told the commander, you have two options. You remove him or I kill him. I'm not going to be surrounded by crazy queens. The commander responded, doctor. I said, yes, camarada. With all due respect, you are truly strange. You like to sleep with men and this guy is just like you. I said, no. Do not confuse me with him. He is a crazy queen and I am gay. Have you ever seen me going on like that? Send him back home because he is a disgrace to the organization. So here you can see how the LGBT combatants themselves had an even more discriminatory attitude 
than the, the heterosexual commanders. So some of my key takeaways from this first piece is really, first of all, there's large differences between the different groups. There are also important exceptions to tolerations uh, in the uh, FARC and the AUC. Uh, and I think also it's worth to notify, notice this, um, this complex cultural distinction between gender identity, sexual orientation, and sexual conduct in the midst of conflict. Um, and of course, my argument is that these uh, heterogenic experiences of LGBT combatants and the large variations between different armed groups are important to take into consideration in transitional justice, peace building policies, and programs. So now we come to the point of these combatants leaving the war and entering into the, to the DDR programs. And so then what happens? Yeah, what we see, of course, in DDR programs in general is that this transition to civilian life is a process that often generates opportunity for multiple and profound changes for ex-combatants. And this includes also significant and rapid, uh, often, uh, transformation of gender roles, practices, and identities. We have seen it in women, we have also seen it in men. But my, I argue that, that for sexual gender minority, they might experience an even larger uh, and uh, significant um, and rapid transformation of roles, identities, and expression and practices following their demobilization, particularly if they demobilize from groups where they were not allowed to, to disclose their sexual orientation and gender identity. So um, what, what I saw, not just that it could have been, that it was sometimes a recent influencing in the decision to demobilize, but also some of the first things that some ex-combatants did once they left the armed groups was really to start disclosing their uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. I had examples of ex-combatants who said that one of the first things they did in the demobilization uh, centers run by the government was to call their mothers. And, and tell her who they really are. For others, it took longer time. Um, here, for example, is an um, example from Elvira, who, who uh, is a former combatant uh, in the M19, uh, who fell in love with the woman uh, a decade after demobilizing. And she said, it was an attraction so strong that I said to myself, I have always denied myself this opportunity. I have never let it prosper. This time I'm going to take the fight. At this time I knew very little about LGBT, I knew very little about lesbians, I knew very little about this world, but I told myself that I was going to give myself this opportunity. I will not deny it. My two oldest daughters were teenagers, 14 and 13 years old, and my youngest daughter was eight year old, and I lived with Louise, her, her partner also demobilized from M19, and I started to feel this sensation. So it can be quick or it can be a long process. I had one transgender woman who, for example, described that even though she had left the group because she wanted to transition, it took her two years to start in a gradual process where she first started to identify as a homosexual man, and then eventually after two years starting to, to identify as a, as a transgender uh, woman. Uh, one thing that I thought was um, very fascinating also, and you can also hear this partly from heterosexual combatants in Colombia, but there was this also this longing to be able to fall in love, right? To be able to, ex-combatants describe how they had longed to have a stable, beautiful relationship, and not just engage in sexual encounters. And I think, even though you can hear this from heterosexual combatants too, of course there's this additional dimension for LGBT combatants who have not been able to, 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 make, to engage uh, in, a, in a relationship um, 
in or seek permission to engage in a relationship within the art groups. So for example, here we have Pablo who describes that it was very strange in the beginning because I felt embarrassed. I hugged him and I felt like if he was going to turn away from me and if, if he was going to reject me because it had always been just sex and nothing more. So I felt very shy. I became very cold when he hugged me. When I was going to, when I started to tell him the first beautiful words of love, it was very difficult because my tongue just got stuck. I just couldn't. So I thought it was better to not say anything since I was used to this. I wanted to say it, but I just couldn't. Then little by little, I started doing it. And when I saw that he did not turn away or feel sorry for me, then well, it became normal. Touching him became easier because I knew he was not going to reject me. I prepared myself psychologically to touch him, then I touched him, caressed him, gave him a kiss on the cheek, looked at him, his face. Caressing him was complicated, but little by little I started doing it. I started discovering. I started doing what I wanted to do and enjoy it the way I wanted to enjoy it, to show what I felt for this person. And his partner was also immobilized from the FARC, but since he had been in the urban militia, he was more open. So you can also see big differences uh, between combatants depending on the roles and uh, where they've been in, 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 the, in their own group. Then, of course, there are those who, uh, who, who start disclosing and embracing their sexual orientation and, and gender identity, and there are, of course, those who, who doesn't. Uh, those who consider it a private matter that they don't want to talk about, uh, or those who still struggle with uncertainty, secrecy, and non-disclosure. I was kind of lucky in my sample in the sense that since I had a broader sample, I actually had two ex-combatants who disclosed their sexual orientation and gender identity during the interviews, and who normally don't speak about uh, their sexual orientation and gender identity. So, I had, so that, I think, added an important thing uh, of course, an extremely difficult group to find, right? To those who, who doesn't disclose and, and, the, and the, the question they grapple with. Um, for example, I had, um, I had this uh, uh, woman who I self-identified as heterosexual, uh, who was a former member of the, of the paramilitary. And she, for example, described how, how she started to feel hatred against men for all the brutal violence and sexual violence against civilians and children she saw in her own group. And that was, according to her, why she started to develop this lesbian relationship with another woman. Um, and up until this day, she's now living in a heterosexual relationship again, but she's constantly thinking about leaving him. Uh, she, still, she still feels this hatred towards men. Uh, and. Uh, and she has not been able to, and she has not been able to speak about this with the psychologist in the program or elsewhere. And she still considers that uh, the biggest sin she has committed in her life, which she asks God for God's forgiveness every day, is for having engaged in a lesbian relationship. And for me, that was kind of uh, impactful after hearing, you know, all the uh, all the stories of the brutal violence that the group that she was part of had committed. But this was what she felt an individual responsibility for, uh, having committed you know, an act of, of, of sin as she, as she saw it. Um, there's also, um, there's also I, I, I looked at particular challenges that this group faces uh, in the process of reintegration, in addition to all, of course, all the challenges that, uh, that ex-combatants tend to face in, in general. But, Specific for this uh, group, I would say that you know 
they of course often have to confront these multiple layers of discrimination. Uh, one combatant said, you know, we are ex-combatants, so we are considered uh, assassinators, but we are also LGBTs, so we are considered bacteria in the society. So, um, so this were, there were different examples of this, um, but there were also examples of where, where the ex-combatants were particularly resourceful in confronting this discrimination. For example, one transgender woman told me how, um, you know, how she, when she came to the educational institution that's part of the reintegration <coughs> program, how she, um, how she was forced to dress as a man. And, uh, and that she then started mobilizing all the transgender women in the educational institution, and that they actually managed to get a shift, and that they can now come to school or to the educational institution dressed as women. And she said, I was surprised that I, who was, had just you know, come out of the closet, was the one leading this fight. But I think she said, as an ex-combatant, you have to fight twice as hard always. I think that's an example of, you know, they have to always confront these multiple, multiple layers of discrimination. In acknowledging also that the uh, LGBT community had been particularly targeted uh, by violence in Colombia, uh, you also, of course, this population has been uh, in different cases, either faced violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity before joining the armed group, in some cases within the armed group, and in some cases after leaving the armed groups. Uh, there was example of those who have engaged, for example, in, in, um, in LGBT rights organization after demobilizing, uh, and who have been, uh, have been surviving several attempts of, suicide, of, of um, assassination, which they thought was based on their engagement for, for LGBT communities and against this type of social cleansing operations. Um, so these, of course, are needs that need to be considered, addressed, uh, both in transitional justice, but also psychosocial needs uh, and trauma counseling, etc. Another factor that for me stood out is that often in, in, in reintegration you speak about the importance of like creating new support networks. And uh, I identified in my research that for this particular group, sometimes it can be particularly challenged to build up those support networks. Um, because, um, uh, and many describe that they're very lonely, that they have one friend and are feeling very isolated. And uh, one avenue uh, that has been described also a lot in Colombia is that the, the church has been an important avenue for many combatants. And there's um, Kimberly Taylor, the anthropologist, who, for example, described how actually the church, as you see, has often been an avenue for affecting change and promoting alternative masculinities. And I can see that a bit in the material on my heterosexual uh, combatants, but of course, when it comes to truly uh, promoting alternative masculinities, uh, when it comes to heteronormative uh, settings, of course, there's a very rigid promotion of those norms within the church that doesn't serve this particular population. And there was a very uh, disfortunate, uh, unfortunate uh, uh, case with a former uh, child soldier, who when he uh, left the armed group, the, the authorities put him in foster care to a family that was very religious and brought him to church, for example. So he described for me, how they took me to church to forget all of this. I went to church with them, but I still like men. We did spiritual retreats for me to change my way of being because of all that had happened to me to forget and become another person. But no, I changed, but they wanted me to change my sexuality. Because it has to be a man with a woman. That is what God says. I know I am committing sin, but my inclination is this. I like men. So here I think the, the program has really, by not considering uh, 
sexual orientation and, and gender identity really, uh, you know, done additional harm through through uh, through not through through this foster care experience. But also, if you think of um, uh, perhaps then the possibility to engage with LGBTI organizations that are many in Colombia, sometimes it's not as easy either for for the ex-combatants to connect with these groups. Also, partly because of their experience uh, uh, having also been socialized into this, uh, you know, um, homophobic kind of attitudes within their own group. So, so even when they had been in contact, there seemed to have not been a, like a real connection often uh, between the ex-combatants and these organizations. And a clear example here is, 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 is uh, Alejandra again who describes. Uh, when they organized the demonstration, the marches, the festivals, like the celebration of the International Day of the LGBTI community, what do they do? They go out, and I do not say we go out, because I do not participate. They go out for the whole world to see them, almost naked, speaking vulgarly, with the tits in the air, with their butts in mini shorts, as if they were on the beach. And this is not what we should show to the public, to an audience including children. So I know that people will say, that's who they are. They have nothing else to show. If they want to earn the respect of the society, look at what they are doing. What is it good for? To show themselves, to walk naked, to be prostitutes, thieves, consumers of drugs and alcohol, and to make scandals. So I criticize them, and they don't like it. Uh, so yeah, so, it's, uh, so both those avenues are, are kind of difficult in terms of this establishment of, of this uh, social network for, for, for this so key takeaways for me for the second part is that reintegration generates opportunities for particularly significant and rapid transformation <coughs> for sexual and gender minority, for ex-combatants who were forced to hide their sexual orientation and gender identity within their respective former armed group. Reintegration, reintegration is a process that allows them to make the choice of whether or not to express their sexual orientation and gender identity. And they can face particular challenges based on discrimination because of their sexual um, orientation and gender identity uh, and at the same time as I said we should also remember that LGBTX combatants can often be resourceful in combating multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination and may exercise leadership skills to defend their right and contribute to the creation of more inclusive post-conflict society so that's why I call for these type of DDR programs to move of course beyond the narrow binary understanding of gender to the response to the needs the rights and ensure the participation and protection of LGBT expertise. Chelsea Green will now provide some discussion comments and then we'll open it to the floor for questions. Thank you for that. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, so I'm going to begin my first question with a quote. Um, it is a quote from Joshua Goldstein, political scientist's um, book, War and Gender. Uh, gender roles adapt individuals for war roles, and war roles provide the context within which individuals are socialized into gender roles. For the war system to change fundamentally, or for war to end, might require profound changes in gender relations. But your work demonstrates the reality goes beyond just gender. Um, even it involves norms surrounding sexuality that reinforce or undermine traditional gender roles, thus shaping the war system and how combatants adopt and shed their combatant status. 
How, therefore, do you see um, expanding sexual norms and identities shaping the war system and the groups that you're studying? Yeah, I think really, you know, this is it's not a conflict. It's really just add one additional layer uh, to to the analysis of how gender also intersects with other social categorization. And, and you, of course, you can you can look at at the not just sexual orientation, but you also have I've interviewed also, for example, um, uh, ex-combatants from uh, from uh, Afro-Colombian descent or indigenous uh, groups, etc. So I think there's a you know. This gender can really be expanded to to look at more intersectional dimensions. Um, the classic one, of course, class and ethnicity and, and, and so forth. But also, I think there's also, as I tried to highlight here, there are also other important um, categorizations within norm groups, like you know, uh, uh, motivation for joining, motivation for leaving, uh, uh, or um, individual ca characteristics as well as group characteristic that kind of plays into to this. But I think there's been a, uh, there's been a, um, Kimberly Thayer also said, I think it's a very, very good um, idea of like saying that these programs that try to disarm, demobilize, uh, reintegrate these combatants, they need to like, disarm this, this, uh, this uh, war system or this idea of gender that is uh, as important as bullets for the war. So I think that's, that's a, Really, where, where my broader research project is also looking at that how you know how are you know how are gender disarmed or, or how is how is this war system sustained beyond disarmament in the process of the DDR in, in Colombia in this case, um, which I think is important. So over the past several years, a lot of your work at the UN has been um, centered within agencies that. Um, contain women in their title. So UN women being the short, um, yes, the, the abbreviation. Exactly. Um, and the UN Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women. Can you describe to us how a focus on women has expanded since you started um, in these organizations and kind of the, the political challenges to that expansion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the, from, from the beginning it was like, a women only focus, right? Then we started talking about gender. Then there was almost a need to, to kind of say that gender is also about men and not just about uh, women. And actually, UN Women, in their long name, actually say UN Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women. So it's al also easy to, to, to forget. I think from my practitioner experience, uh, linking back to my research project, when I was an advisor, gender advisor in Colombia, one of the first things when I came as, in as an advisor, they said, we need to have a pro gender program. We need to have a program for this 4,000 or something uh, women ex-combatant we have in the program. And for me, one of the, one of the big things that I was particularly uh, pleased with during the, the two and a half years that I worked in Colombia on this was that I, I managed to advocate for that it was not just a women's program, that we did, would do gender for for all the combatants, so also the 30,000 men in the program. So that would mean DVD trainings, it would mean women's rights trainings, etc. And I think similarly to that, I feel like now with my LGBT research, my recommendations, um, also now in engagement at the policy level, for example, in the updating of the UNDDR standards, my recommendation is a little bit a similar thing, that an LGBT focus doesn't necessarily be, it's not just about 
looking at the needs of the LGBT population, but in whatever crisis you've seen that uh, LGBT community have been specifically targeted, I think that all combatants who have been socialized into this type of violence need to have a component of, uh, of uh, LGBT rights as part of their reintegration process. So not just the, the few you know, uh, LGBT combatant stuff, but really the, 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 whole, uh, the whole caseload as, as such. So I apply a little bit the same thinking there. Um, but yeah, I think, think now there's a, you know, there, there was a shift, okay, women, then gender, coming back to your question, and then now also on how much to be able to, to expand, to include different uh, aspects of intersectionality. I think that's a, uh, that's a very living discussion that's uh, happening among the civil society and, uh, and policymakers and, and, and researchers on, on, on how to uh, position you know those issues uh, as a, together, but I think we can also see a big backlash uh, against these uh, these issues. And the more you broaden the agenda, the, the more massive uh, backlash you can, can generate. I mean, in Colombia, it was the case of the gender ideology of the peace agreement and the LGBT, uh, the so-called gender ideology, right? And the, and the peace and the LGBT rights that really made conservative votes vote against the referendum. And I think that sometimes there's this fear also in the these discussions that you know the more you broaden the the kind of the agenda the, the more backlash you you then uh, generate and I think we definitely see just coming out of the Commission on the status of women of the United Nations uh, and we definitely see of course uh, increasing uh, conservative wave and increasing backlash including even on uh, on on on, on uh, using the word gender versus using binary terms such as women, men, boys and girls. And so, and earlier you talked about this idea of a um, do not harm approach to somewhat address this concern about backlash. How do you fight for gender equality and the inclusion of sexual minorities in these kinds of agreements and within societal norms while also you don't want to, you don't want to compromise your goals either. How, how would you suggest a balance be struck there? I think you have to work in a really circumspect way. Uh, in terms of, uh, if I look specifically on on on, uh, on DDR, for example, I think first of all, it's very important to analyze the context, right? To see have have the LGBT community been targeted in this in these uh, processes. Mm -hmm. If the answer that then is yes, of course, then this is a very relevant issue to think about, both in transitional justice, in peace building, and in in, in, in DDR. Uh, programs, and I think Colombia in this case has been, you know, uh, only this subcommission on, on gender in Havana has been described by the United Nations, for example, as a unique mechanism for peace building. And of course, it started with bringing gender, and then through that, LGBT uh, organizations and victim survivors also starting engaging, and uh, and that really started that really shaped the, the the conversation, particularly the active participation of these persons traveling to. To, to Havana, and, and that is something that both the, some of the combatants active in organizations spoke about, but also that I heard from FARC commander, for example, that it was really due to this that they started opening their eyes to, 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 this, uh, to this topic. So I think that was a, a good step. When I was in Colombia doing my field work in 2017, the FARC was, you know, they were doing trainings all over the countries in the, in the, as they were waiting for the mobilization to take place, on LGBT rights and on masculinities and, and issues like that. So that, they were <coughs> uh, taking that on by themselves to, as part of the implementation. 
then still, as I said, that the, the whole dimension of acknowledging their own uh, violation within the ranks was not was not there. But I think if the if you have the if you've seen that the violence is there, you need to find these mechanisms in a circumspect way to increase participation and then you know throughout the whole process from the peace negotiations and then throughout implementation to to increase the voices and the and, and, and the needs of, of these uh, uh, of these organizations without of course being very careful that you don't create a, create a backlash and my recommendations have also been on the global policy level for example that if you in the DDR standards for example we talk about the importance of involving women's groups for women combatants so uh, you know this is currently going through peer review but for me for example I I think that it's important to there also then make reference to, for example, LGBT organization if they exist in these countries. But also, of course, being very mindful of if these same organizations have been targeted, that you can just not ship them in without any protection. So, so it's, uh, you, these recommendations also have to be really contextualized. You really have to have a do no harm, and, and you know if, if, if the communities are, are are interested in doing this, and if they're not, of course, that's not something that you can. Uh, force them, but I think at least at least considering these issues and seeing what is feasible, uh, of course, also provide providing uh, I think very important funding for those type of local organization and women-led organization and, and LGBT organization is a very important way of also ensuring that they can participate as they see fit throughout the uh, throughout the process a more local localized and participatory um, approach. Um, and also be able to document, for example, right now, just these days, the LGBT organization in Colombia handed in reports on to the War Crime Tribunal, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, on reports on, on that they have documented of violations of, of the rights of, um, of LGBT community on behalf of the different armed groups. So that's also the first time that the War Tribunal starts really looking at, at these issues. So I think we will be able to also get through uh, a lot of setbacks and a lot of learnings from from the from the Colombian case that you know that can also hopefully in the future inform other other processes. Yeah. So an analysis of the um, University of Edinburgh's peace and agreement database shows that in it it's uh, between 19 it contains uh, 1,500 um, cases between 1990 and January 2016, um, and only nine of those 1,500 peace agreements contain any reference to gay, lesbian, transgender, or transsexual people in their words, in the coding, um, in any form. Um, so your experience with this issue, and highly, you have experience in highly institutionalized contexts in the UN, for example, but then also hyper-individualized, very personal interviews. Um, and it highlights both the organizational, social, and also the personal challenges that LGBT um, combatants, let alone civilians, face, um, particularly during wartime. In your opinion, is it possible to de-gender or desexualize militarization, and should that even be the ultimate goal? Um, desexualize militarization. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think. You know, through the militarization, we have often this seen this fomentation of militarized masculinities, femininities, and and um, normative heterosexuality, etc. So I think, you know, even though it's not always the case, and we can see variations within our group, uh, I think when we engage with these actor in peace building efforts, 
there really needs to be a con conscious effort of looking at how 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 militarization is is gendered, uh, and then try to um, you know uh, disarm the mind, as some some use that that word, or, or really see how how you can uh, you know it's not just about uh, economic livelihoods and, and you know or or social integration, or you, you really need to also understand those gender dimensions and also see, uh, understand how that contributes or not to to recidivism, to 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 uh, to, to the reintegration process as such, or to to those who also choose to, for example, maintain um, maintain these militarized uh, masculinities or femininities and, and continue to engage in in, in armed. Uh, in armed struggle, and I think Colombia is there also. Is a, you know, it's a it's a country that still has several ongoing conflicts. So there's also you know we see a lot of dissident groups. We see a lot of like this. <coughs> it's, it's a very special DDR process in the sense that it was this, this yeah, new generation of DDR process that was in, implemented in the midst of conflict. And I mean that's that's still the challenge we see today, specifically with the implementation of the peace agreement, and also you know. And, and what is the role that gender plays in that? I think that's also very crucial to to not just consider it a you know a soft issue that can come later, but actually consider it as a, a as a as an important issue because, we, for example, there's very clear gender dimension in terms of who returned to war. Right? The, mm -hmm. um, there are more male combatants than female combatants, but even if you look just on percentage, the, the percentage of male combatants returning to war in Colombia is higher than the percentage of so there is, of course, a gendered uh, dimension uh, to this that uh, needs to be considered uh, throughout these efforts. Great. I'm going to open it up again. Any questions you might all have? Yeah, this is just totally fascinating. So thank you very much for talking to us about your work. I was really curious if you could say more about um, civilian um, groups that are or are not kind of advocating for uh, LGBT ex-combatants. So you sort of made reference to the fact that some of the ex-combatants aren't too happy about sort of reintegrating into like pride or whatever um, because of the way they sort of perceive uh, civilian sexualities as being expressed. But um, are there people within um, Colombia that are trying to sort of actively mobilize and advocate or reintegrate ex-combatants uh, into more civilian kind of organizations. Um, and then my second question is more about the applicability to other cases. A, a lot of the cases I'm more familiar with are in the Arab world and Middle East. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the, the levels of repression uh, more broadly in society um, as perhaps being even more extreme um, than in um, the Western Hemisphere in general. And so I was just curious, you know, how far these types of uh, experiences you think travel um, and whether they're more or less universal or whether there might be um, settings in which um, they're either even more suppressed or um, or where the kind of it would be even more delicate to broach the subjects in the context of negotiations. Yeah, thank you for those really great questions. Um, I think when it comes to the civilian groups uh, in Colombia, um, 
it, it, it very much, I think, depends also of uh, you know what the, the general population's kind of view on the DDR processes in general, as legitimate or not legitimate, right? And that's we can see in different settings across the world. Is it war heroes that are coming home from having won the you know a war, or is this uh, stigmatized, ostracized combatants, etc.? So all these, of course, influence a lot. And I think you can see, if you discuss stigma, you can see it's slightly different between which groups people are coming from. Um, uh, for example, when, when, when I worked in Colombia before, uh, the, the whole, for example, demobilization of the paramilitary was extremely polemic, right? It was something that uh, the civil society and the international community uh, was, uh, to a large extent, uh, had a lot of um, legitimate concerns about that whole process. There were very low you know, uh, um, uh, convictions for extreme brutalized violence. It was set, seen as a blanket amnesty. And then there were seen as many of these combatants who had committed all these crimes were seeing so much support, like the victims and survivors were not re receiving. So there was a general discontent uh, among many civil society organizations uh, with the process as such, which made it difficult, for example, to engage with the uh, uh, women's groups didn't want to, for example, engage with uh, with uh, women ex-combatants uh, at, at that point. Uh, so I think that's the. So it depends on also the legitimacy of the process itself. And I think, of course, Colombia is struggling with the fact that the referendum, 51% uh, voted against the peace agreement, and then the uh, government went ahead with uh, made changes in, and then passed it through Congress. But there's still, of course, this discontent, which is also now, of course, why we've seen a change in government with the, with the government coming in who was largely against the, the, this peace negotiation and who, and who have tried to, uh, to, to, to say that they want to renegotiate things, even though it's, you know, it's been gone through a constitutional court, even the special jurisdiction for peace, the war trial, is now the, the president has indicated that he wants to send that back to Congress again. So, but of course, the, there are those socially conservative groups that that discontent that doesn't um, that 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 is there that doesn't you know fully generate perhaps that kind of uh, civilian uh, support that would be uh, would be needed through all through all fronts. I think in terms of the LGBT organizations, many of them are really focused now on looking at the at the, the, the crimes against the civilian population. So uh, so perhaps this is also something that you know. It's not the, the first thing that people want to take up. I hope that with time, the focus will also uh, come to these issues uh, of systematic violations of, of, of LGBT combatants' rights uh, um, within their own groups. Uh, but I think that's some of the, the challenges it, it relates really to, to, to the overall legitimacy of the, of the process. Of course, uh, uh, many civilian organizations are much more in favor, of course, of the, of the FARC negotiation. Many rallied were, were part of them at the negotiations in Havana, etc. So that, of course, has generated a large buy-in in general for the process. That is completely different from the process uh, with the paramilitary, for example. Um, and you should also remember that the second one, this is the, the other presidential candidate came second, right? It's actually a former combatant of M19. Uh, so, so that also shows that, t to, a to a certain extent, how uh, you know that the, 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 the that there's not that level of stigma towards towards uh, politicians from from that uh, group that have been able to be the mayor in in Colombia and been able to to run for for office. Um, so, and when it comes to um, 
applicability to to other settings. I mean, it's clearly that that the whole uh, Middle East and ISIS, etc. That has that has been what has now really made uh, caught the eye of the international community. The the Security Council convened for the first time in 2015 to discuss these issues, really in the wake of the violence we saw from ISIS against LGBT uh, community. Um, and similarly, the Secretary General have acknowledged uh, these actions as a moral cleansing, the targeted uh, violence against. So I think that you know one should be, of course, hesitant with ma making large, uh, large comparison. But I mean, given that so many different armed uh, groups be it the guerrilla groups in so many different parts of the world have had this discriminatory and violent kind of behavior both against civilians as well as in, within their own ranks makes it very important to continue this research. And I very much say that my research is explorative. I really hope that others will start looking at other cases that it can generate learning. But, uh, but I mean, just as gender seems stubbornly uh, consistent uh, and still is, as is see which, um, quoting as well, I think there's some, some stubborn consistency in this, in this violence, uh, although the, it's different between different armed groups, that makes it very relevant to, to, to really start looking at how it can uh, be applied in, in different, in different uh, settings. And also, uh, you know, once again, uh, not even my, I'm from Sweden, for example, looking now at former ISIS uh, combatants coming back to Sweden who have been socialized into this violence, what does that mean, right? Like uh, the same recommendation I, I give to Colombia, you know, uh, you know, it's valid also now for European countries, right? That are that are uh, will re be receiving uh, persons who have been engaged in this enormous brutalized uh, violence. within the different groups. One of the things, of, of course, both as staff members they <coughs> push for, for equal rights, for, for uh, you know, there's been changes in, for example, in the, in the recognition of uh, same-sex <coughs> partnerships, etc., and, and those type of fights that, that, uh, that, um, that has been taken amongst staff members within the UN, with, through the feminist networks, etc. And then, of course, <coughs> also, uh, in, the, in, in the work we do uh, around the world, and women have these civil society organizations, for example, uh, advisory boards <coughs> all over the world. And the thing now that we are pleased about is that we have engaged LGBT organization in, in all of those, e even in challenging settings uh, where, you know, 
might be outlawed, and uh, the foundation <coughs> with these groups. I think that's one step. Uh, there's not. Um, I think this is still still very much a discussion on how to 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 do this, and and uh, we are just now coming up with internal guidance for for our offices in that. Um, but I think still, it, it, as you say, it's really we're still in diapers in the sense of how to really uh, address this these issues more. Um, yeah, globally. Um, there's extremely much left to done. Of course, there's been more and more questions coming from students, from media, etc., on how to on how to engage with this. And uh, and as I said, we are all, it, sometimes it's even it, it can also be backlash from from as I said from people who who have this see now that we are living in a global time of backlash, which doesn't make it so easy to 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 push for intersectionality. Uh, so so there's also I think sometimes a, a maybe discussion among partners. Uh, how to, to move this uh, move this uh, agenda agenda forward? Um, but yes, baby steps I think are are being taken at least. Smiling just so. Just because you know, uh, so when I was in Nepal a couple years ago for the earthquake response, my gender colleagues at the time were really frustrated because I guess GenCap was having an internal debate on whether or not they were feminist. Yeah. So yeah. whether or not it was a feminist roster deployed to work on yeah. gender within the system, and they were about you know pulling their hair out, right, looking at what's happening. So when you have an organization that itself champions these issues, denying the analysis behind the issues themselves, you know, so we have all these challenges around gender equality and women's empowerment, mm -hmm. and then to move to this other piece, mm -hmm. yeah, there's there's a lot to do. Yeah, if you look exactly on crisis response, for example, we've just done the, um, an updated version of the Interagency Standing Committee's gender handbook, okay. and that one, you know, it's back to your question about semantics, that one went from being gender to, to being men, women, and girls, and boys equal mm -hmm. means, yeah. uh, Different different needs, equal opportunities. So now, when the update was done, it was you know gender encompass everything. But if you start using this binary language, of course, then uh, people uh, alerted that this is uh, this is excluding non-binary folks. So actually, in the updated version, it's now saying women, men, boys, and girls, and non-binary persons. So that's a big step forward. And this is the interagency standing committee's gender handbook. However, if you see in the, in the, for example, in the resolution, especially where they have to be passed with consensus, you see that there's humanitarian resolutions, you see that there's reference to intersectionality, class, uh, so forth, and education, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, gender, but, uh, but sexual orientation and gender identity just doesn't pass resolutions. Uh, there's not consensus among member states on, on that. So, uh, so that's why it's, that's a constant uh, yeah, that's a constant failed battle in, in terms of trying to, to uh, advance that type of language, more inclusive language in, 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 in this type of negotiations. I have a question. Um, I know you mentioned in M19 that there were groups that were specifically gay men who were gathering together and working. Have you noticed any trends of that are all female? working together, and do you see the same trend of that sort of militarized masculinity within groups that are primarily made up of women? Um, maybe you have studied that more, right? Uh, I, I have not looked at them. I have not seen um, these groups of women, um, exclusive groups of women in, in the fieldwork I have done. Uh, 
but I think right from the other places you've seen those type of well, there's there's rumors of all women's groups in Liberia and Sierra Leone. I don't actually know if they truly existed per se or for how long. Yeah, um, in my research in West Africa, like gender homogenous units are used strategically and tactically, but usually for the purposes of a still patriarchal organization. So when women come together, it's not. I don't think it's inherently emancipatory. It doesn't like revolutionize the gender roles within the group more broadly. And I think maybe to turn it back to the question of um, M19, it'd be interesting to hear more about what effect on the broader organization this specific unit has had. Because in, um, in the Sierra Leone Civil War, which is where my own research and some of Dara's research has been focused, um, there, were, there were different ways that femininity and, and women's militarization was weaponized. So for example, in, there were kind of like traditional practices or neo-traditional practices of using women's naked bodies as a, as a weapon against um, an oncoming enemy because if they saw women naked, it was supposed to kind of neutralize this um, uh, natural medicine that they had that was to make them bulletproof. There were other ways that women um, were sent as like spy squads or used as bodyguards. And it was always using the sort of uh, violent femininity as uniquely powerful against men. But it didn't, in, in doing that, it still doesn't disrupt the gender hierarchy because it uses the gender hierarchy to kind of neutralize men's power against one another would be my take on it. Um, but I'm curious about this M19 unit of, of gay or queer men. Did they, did they self-contain for their own I mean, you, you talk about it, you situate it in their kind of political objectives. Um, how did that relate to what the rest of M19 was doing? Or? Mm -hmm. I think with M19, they were famous for being uh, very focused on equality and being a kind of very heterogeneous group uh, and, and more, flex more flexible in that sense. Uh, so so that, that made them uh, perhaps more propensed to, to kind of accept people in, in, in diverse uh, roles. Uh, of course, this group only operated during a, a short period of time, but I think it was still, uh, it's still important to see that I have different, have different ex-combatants who, who said that they lived openly in relationships with other eminently combatants or with civilians, and like this was not something that was, there was this secrecy around necessarily. And I said that I think the, particularly the, the, the interesting thing was their examples of where high commanders had really know, stop those who started, for example, after drinking, started bullying this uh, openly gay man, for example, because that really shows that that was not something that was accepted. On the other hand, I mean, I say in my research that just as other researchers have shown that, you know, there's, there's a, a, a both hegemonic and non-hegemonic pattern that coexisting in terms of gender in, in M90s. There were both, like, women had prominent roles, they were negotiators, etc. Uh, high high percentage of women in the, in, the, in the structures, but at the same time, of course, there were also discrimination. And I think similar to that, that also applies a little bit to when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity, because, of course, there were also examples of those. Uh, there was one woman who, for example, fell in love with uh, a, when she was uh, in, det in detention in a women's prison with another prisoner, and her colleagues didn't like it at all, for example. So she felt that it was so discriminatory and that they, so there was also, you know, examples of, uh, and some said it. Some uh, one one bisexual uh, 
commands, and I think that in that sense, like M19 was also a reflection of the society as such, that it was an emphasis on more equality, but at the same time, you know, there were also those who, who had discriminatory attitudes, uh, etc. And uh, and this group, of course, since they, this is, it's uh, not everyone was aware of, of these these groups, so that why maybe doesn't have that um, amplifying effect on every on, on the whole organization because everyone worked in their own cell, right? So that hindered it to really be a platform for 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 more uh, for the real vindication of their rights, etc., etc. Um, but still, the, the contrast with the other groups is, of course, uh, very very large. Uh, and we should remember that this is talking about the 80s when these cases are. And as several described, who are now part of feminist groups and uh, and male combatants, heterosexual officers, like in both with gender, like this was not issues that they were aware of during the time. So they were maybe more, some said, we were maybe more advanced in practice than in theory. Uh, so so those were the type of explanations that that, um, that that different combatants also gave. I wanted to ask a question about the FARC. Um, I was surprised that they had this sort of heightened heteronormativity amongst your cases because as somebody who's only kind of brushed across them at a distance for comparative research, um, you know, they're, no they're known for having s supposedly enlightened kind of sexual norms and policies and gender equality. And, um, and so I was curious if you could say something about why this ostensibly progressive organization was so so rigid in its heteronormative um, expectations and enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then also if, you know, some of the comments you've just made make me think that love is more threatening to organizational integrity than sex, um, which is something that I guess I haven't <coughs> thought about in those terms, but I've seen come through in some of my own research. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, extremely good questions. Um, I mean, you can see it with many guerrilla groups who have these emancipatory goals, right, of advancing gender equality in, in, in some senses. I think there's also very much a, a question about how that's, you know, sometimes we also read as if everyone who were in the guerrilla group were empowered and this, this kind of ideas. But I think now also, when I was in Colombia, the, the, there was a very vivid discussion within uh, the FARC uh, feminists, the Farianas, the FARC women, also about, uh, and, and that I saw also in, among M19 women somehow, some, some also being questioning, is it really gender equality that we have to carry the same weight as men if we, you know, generally have less body mass? And so they're kind of re-evaluating if that was actually a discrimination against them, or if it was, uh, you know, gender equality. So those things I think are, you know, very, it, it's still, it's, it's it's a, it's a very interesting kind of discussion going on on, on those um, on the on those topic and kind of accepting diversity and the different roles that um, that deviates a little bit from you know the, the idea that they you know with this emancipatory kind of ideas that they they came from um, um, back there and I think that you know also when you interview FARC commanders, what they have told me is that of course like they, they point to the fact that you know FARC was started as a rural guerrilla, <coughs> etc., and that you know stemming from that time in the '60s, like that kind of so conservative ideas that that's kind of you know carried on uh, throughout the 
but it's, it's what is really interesting for me is like how they have made this you know complete U-turn on this uh, topic with the with the peace negotiations and kind of just stepping into the you know to, to the to the next century and realizing that that was not uh, uh, that that wasn't a mistake in a sense that they, it's not that you know LGBT combatants cannot be fit for for uh, for for for, for, uh, for fight for example etc. Uh, but there were many, many different also explanations that I heard from combatants themselves. Some com commanders have said that you know it's because of the pollutions in the, the chickens that you eat that this is becoming more popular to become LGBT. Like there was all kind of really weird explanation of why you know why LGBT persons cannot be part of the of the group um, that flourished. So um, so yeah, I think it's part of that kind of. And maybe, as you say, also the functionality of waging war, like involving women, that was a substantive large group that, you know, that also then advanced this kind of agenda of more emancipatory goals where there's, like, the, the LGBT community was more overlooked. And, and uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, don't, I really don't have a, a good answer to, uh, to that. But yeah, the FAR commanders themselves speak to kind of the culture of come stemming from the time they were established the uh, conservative um, being a conservative group and I mean that still we can see in the Colombian society today right so it's not it's not necessarily a complete disconnect with uh, with the rest of the society the ones who really stand out being more open than the overall society was the M19 um, and yeah I think so that love is more threatening I, I, I think you are right about that in both FARC and the AC, you had to ask for permission to engage in uh, both in sexual encounters as well as in a relationship. So that's very regulated by the organization, and as you know, also the also um, you know reproductive rights. We shouldn't go into that. That's another area that they haven't recognized at all. Like the fact that you know almost all FARC women I have interviewed have gone through one, two, three forced abortions. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed people who've been you know. Uh, who have uh, had forced abortion up to six months, like people who have said that their children were screaming when they were brought out. So we're not talking, I mean, uh, we are really talking about extreme violation. And that's something also, that when I asked FARC commanders about that, they say, oh, you know, now we as uh, FARC, uh, we want to fight for the rights of women to have uh, abortions. So of course, we all want to fight for women to have the right to have abortion, but then they completely then turn the question from the real topic here of, of uh, forced uh, uh, forced abortions uh, at sometimes at an extremely late uh, stage, uh, and, and there's also a class dimension to there because individual commanders who are allowed to have their children, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, um, younger, um, whether it's foot soldiers, then did not. I interviewed also, as you see, doctors, and now. The doctor who was there, uh, who also now, who who is under investigation for uh, for this type of uh, uh, um, forced abortions. So I also, of course, very aware aware that this, these are crimes against humanity. He tells me himself. Uh, whether it's, for example, uh, nurses. Also, one of the uh, homosexual men in this is a, was a nurse, uh, and he said, "Yeah, I I I, I participated in all forms of." forced abortions against women. He spoke openly about it, of course, because he's not there, and felt that uh, that he was not responsible 
before that. So of course the whole process from being a couple to reproductive rights to falling in love, it's all, it was all extremely regulated by the, uh, by the group. And that's why we see also a baby boom now, right? When the, as part of the uh, demobilization of many leave the group and then they start having a, a family. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors, the Belfer Center, the Women in Public Policy Program, which is just down the hall, the Carr Center for Human Rights, and the Ash Center have all made it possible for you to join us and for us to have coffee so that we're alert for the conversation. <laughs> um, so please join me in thanking Teresa for her, her talk and Chelsea.